Well, hey, everybody, we've got a special episode for you this week. We are live from Israel. So there are two special things about this podcast. And as you'll see, uh, this one's going to be a little bit different than what we've done before. But the first thing is we're sitting in the Hotel Dan in Jerusalem in Israel. And the second thing is we have the most people here we've ever had on a podcast before. So this is going to be a party. So I've got with me Terry Fakes. I've got Blake Baston. And we want to introduce a special guest to you today. We have our Israeli guide with us, Yehuda. So why don't you introduce him? Well, Yehuda, in my opinion, is the best guide in Israel. And we've been working with Yehuda for six years. And he brings uh, an unbelievable amount of knowledge, history. Uh, I mean, literally, to be a guide here, you have to have like a master's degree in ancient history. And he has that and more. And so it really enriches our experiences in Israel to have him helping guide. And then he and I have really learned to work as a team so I can do some Bible lessons. But Yehuda does so much history, geography, etc. So welcome to the podcast for the first time. So Yehuda, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you start guiding trips in Israel? Well, that's a story. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I actually didn't know what to do, to study. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I met my cousin, and he told me, uh, why won't you study to be a tour guide? And then, you know, a tour guide is studying all kind of different subjects, and you'll see that you like one of them and go and study that. So that's what I did. But it turned out that I liked it all. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept on studying, done a few degrees, and then... Uh, I decided to be a tour guide only uh, 1988 as only a tour guide. Mm-hmm. Since then, I mean, before that time, I was a manager of a field school mm-hmm. in the south. It means all of that region from Engedi to Alat. And then uh, I have been a second manager of a touring company, but I didn't want to be within four walls. Oh, so yeah. I decided to be yes. out to be a tour yeah. guide. So since 1988, I'm working only as a tour guide. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I like about you is, I don't know if you've ever seen these ads before, but in, in on American television, we have these ads for Dos Equis, where they used to run the most interesting man in the world. Do you know what I'm talking about? Stay thirsty, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So literally every time I get to talk to you, I feel like you are more of the most interesting man in the world. I mean, you've done everything. Give us a snapshot of your time leading up to that before you became a tour guide. What what were you doing? Where were you born? What was your experience before that? I was born in a kibbutz near Gaza Strip, Kibbutz Gvar Am. And I uh, grew over there until the age of uh, 14 when my parents left. And uh, we uh, were living in the center of Israel for a year and then near Haifa in a village. And uh, then uh, after graduating the uh, high school, I went to uh, the army. I've been four years in the army, then three more years in security service, and then uh, came back over here and started to study in the university. And uh, after uh, four years in the university, I... uh, became a two I mean I was a manager in the field school over there and mm-hmm. so on. Awesome. Well, you know, the, there's mandatory military service here, three years for men, two years for women after high school. You stayed in a little longer. But one thing that's always been of interest to me is you were in during the nineteen 
you were you in the military in the 1973 yes. Yom Kippur War? Yes. That's what I thought. And I fought you were in the that. south, right? Yes. Near the the yes. uh, Suez. I fought, I fought by the front with Egypt, and I okay. crossed and I crossed also into Egypt, 1973. Yeah, wow. And I crossed the Suez Canal into Egypt. Yes, wow. So one of the things that a lot of our listeners probably don't understand is when I feel like when we come on these tours, one of the things I've learned the most about is the modern state of Israel. So you think you read about Israel in the Bible, and then you know that when you watch the news, you know that there is a nation of Israel, but you don't know much of the history about Israel, and you've really lived that. So I wanted to ask you, what does it mean to you as a Jew to get to live in Israel? Well, this is my country. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that after so long that we haven't been over here, I mean, there were always Jews in the country over here, but most of them were exiled. Mm -hmm. And uh, therefore, during the end of the uh, 19th century, Jews started to come back. And they, uh, we have a few waves of coming back. My parents came uh, 48 and 51. But for me to be born over here, of course, it's very important. I uh, fought over here. I, all my life I've been over here, mm -hmm. except a few years abroad. But uh, but uh, most of my life I've been over here. I've been to the army over here. So this is, uh, for me, it's like this is my homeland. Mm -hmm. There is no other land that can be like uh, right. like this. It's This is my homeland. Yeah. Well, Blake, this is your first time in Israel. What surprises you about Israel and the Middle East? I mean, what's been the eye-opener for you? Yeah, I think for me coming here, I I was not expecting to see the mix of people in all the different pockets the way I've seen it. Uh, and I think it's easy for an American to, to hear Israel and think Jewish nation, nothing but Jewish people in Israel, uh, you know, Gaza, West Bank, nothing but Palestinians, uh, um, you know, and even honestly, a lot of Americans think Muslim faith, mm -hmm. nothing but, but, but people of Muslim faith. Uh, in those areas. And so for me, just seeing how the entire country is such an incredible mix, uh, and and just my eyes were open driving through the West Bank, uh, seeing the different areas we've seen, that there is a lot of different types of people who are living together in a very, you know, uh, in, in trying to maintain a balance uh, as, as best that they seem like they can. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've, we've gone to a, a Druze village. We've, we've gone to, we've seen... Uh, an area under Palestinian controls with Jewish settlements. We've seen uh, Christians in predominantly Muslim areas. We've seen a very interesting mix of places and people on this yeah, trip good point. that I probably wasn't expecting to see that type of diversity in all the different pockets the way yeah, I have. Yeah, all in the size of what, like New Jersey? Oh, yeah. What is the size of it? I mean, it's New a, Jersey. It's yeah. smaller than you think, and part of the country... You know, we haven't even been to yet. So we've been in an upper two-thirds or half of the country, and we've seen all of this all next to each other. Right. Mm -hmm. So I want to pick up a little bit where you left off with your own story. It, most, most Americans don't know much about the history of Israel. So after World War II, there's a charter to begin creating a place no, for... It's even before. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because I've been wanting to ask you this the entire trip. So Winston Churchill is one of my favorite people in history. And you may not like him, you may like him, but I know he worked hard for the state of Israel starting 20, 30 years before 
anybody was even thinking about creating a nation. Walk us through what it looked like to have a nation of Israel after World War II. After World War II? No. What were the steps leading up to that so that after World War II they created... Okay. So it's, it starts actually with the partition resolution of the United Nations, 1947. It is actually uh, November 29th, 1947, the partition resolution. That is after, during the British Monday time, uh, at the beginning of the British Monday time, they meant to give the Jewish state from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. But because uh, there were so many Arabs who lived along the West Bank, they decided to uh, divide the country into two countries, an Arab state and a Jewish state. They didn't name them. An Arab state for the Arabs and a Jewish uh, state for the uh, Jews. And the, uh, that is the partition resolution. The, uh, we got mainly the, uh, the desert and a very narrow stripe along the, uh, the uh, shore. And a bit of the Galilee, I would say about uh, almost half of the good land of the Galilee. That's what we got. And our leaders said, well, fine, better than nothing. But the Arabs said, no way. There is not going to be any Jewish state over here. And the next day, they started the war. So they started to attack vehicles on the roads, along the roads. They started to attack settlements. And uh, we just had uh, militias. Mm-hmm. two militias. So uh, at the beginning, it was very hard. But then slowly, slowly, we managed to uh, take care of our settlements on our vehicles. Not completely. I mean, it was so complicated with Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under siege. So uh, they broke the way, and then it was uh, closed again, and, and again, and again, and again. So it was a very hard war. war. And especially after the British left, they left uh, May the 14th, 1948. At that day, Friday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Ben-Gurion proclaimed the State of Israel. Hmm. Although he knew that uh, the day after, five big armies will invade into the land. So that's what happened, and we didn't have an army yet. It means that for additional month, we didn't have an army to stop the other armies, and they were all equipped with tanks, cannons, airplanes, and whatever. We didn't have anything of it. So it was very hard, and eventually, uh, slowly, slowly, we managed to bring over your ammunition and airplanes and, and some tanks, and by uh, uh, March 1949, it was the end of the war with most of them, with Syria, it lasts until 1951, but with the rest until 1948. And there were the ceasefire agreements. Mm-hmm. And so the West Bank was by the hands of the Jordanians because they uh, moved in 1948 and they didn't leave. Gaza Strip was by the hands of the uh, uh, Egyptians because they moved in and never left. And that's the way it was 19. Uh, we call it 1948, but actually, since 1951, those are the borders until 1967. Mm-hmm. So going back to that war, though, that where you had five nations, you know, with established armies you know, coming in and invading all together, you know, in unison, it just doesn't make sense to me how a a country with people who, for the most part, had pistols and rifles, mm-hmm. I mean, no tanks, no no planes, nothing at that point in time how they are able to defend that. So can you just maybe give us some examples of 
the people in the towns and the villages, just how they actually were able to battle back these armies. Well, I can tell you the uh, story of Dganya. So uh, in Dganya, uh, they knew the uh, army will come. They knew the, Russian, the uh, Syrian army will come. So they evacuated the children and the women already. And uh, there were only uh, 20, uh, I think it was 27 or 28 people in the kibbutz. And two women that had to cook for the men. And the other were men that they had trenches around the kibbutz. They had rifles, they had some pistols, and they had multiple cocktails. And when the uh, Syrian army came, they came with tanks, with cannons, with a lot of soldiers. And the first tank was about to cross the trench, and one of the members of the kibbutz just stood up, threw a Molotov cocktail on the tank, and when the, Russian, when the Syrian army saw the tank, their tank in flames, they just withdrew. So we always say that it's all about God. I mean, there is no other explanation, because we didn't have actually an army. So, and in a lot of places, such miracles happened. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other places that have fought, they really fought hard, and with nothing, but they fought very hard, because uh, they knew we have nowhere to go. The Arabs, the Arabs said that they are going to throw us to the sea, so you have to fight. What will you do? There, there is also another uh, example, for example, the uh, Egyptian army. There was nothing to stop the Egyptian army from going all the way to Tel Aviv. But they uh, insisted to, uh, in the first five days, they insisted to conquer all of those kibbutzim along the way to Tel Aviv. And then they stopped. It took them two weeks. to, uh, And then uh, after about uh, two weeks, uh, we managed to establish a kind of attack because we had four airplanes that we didn't have an army yet, but we had four airplanes that they reassembled from different parts. Nobody knew how to fly them. Nobody, uh, nobody knew how to throw bombs. But they took off four pilots and they threw bombs. Didn't hit anybody, but the Egyptian army stopped. Mm -hmm. So that gave us a bit of time to get arranged. So we did have four airplanes before the army was established, but they didn't know how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are the things that you feel like Americans don't understand about Israel? I think, first of all, they don't uh, know the uh, history. They don't know the facts. They're being brainwashed by the uh, Palestinian uh, propaganda, and uh, especially the BDS. Mm -hmm. They don't check. They don't check the uh, all of those uh, facts. And... Uh, if they would only know the facts, I don't think they will uh, look at Israel the way they look. Hmm. And the, uh, the fact that we agreed by the partition resolution, we agreed to have two countries over here, two states over here, right. and uh, the Arabs didn't agree. Mm -hmm. The fact that 1967, they attacked us. I mean, they were about to attack us. We started two days before because we were afraid. They had mm -hmm. way bigger armies. We were more equipped. So we started it uh, two days before. But for example, if you take King Hussein, mm -hmm. King Hussein joined the war. We didn't have any plan to take the, west, the uh, eastern side of Jerusalem. We didn't have any plan to take the West Bank. Right. Because he joined the war, we actually started to fight him, and that's the way we took it. Mm -hmm. 
So they don't understand those things. And uh, they also don't understand the way the Palestinians are looking at it. I mean, if you want to give them something, they always will demand more because mm -hmm. you're weak. If you want to give them something, it means you're weak. So they will want more. Yeah. So And they don't have a strong leader mm -hmm. that can decide, okay, that's it. Let's go and make peace with them. Right. Yeah, I think that's a big difference in the way that I've heard you talk about relations in the Middle East and the way that we talk about relations in the Middle East. In American politics, I feel like what everybody's looking for is a compromise. So this country agrees to this, we agree to this, everybody gives a little bit, and then everybody lives in peace. That's kind of the gold standard. But what I hear you saying is that's not even the same game that's being played in the Middle East. It cannot be. Why is that? Because, you see, the Arabs keep on uh, uh, selling their dreams or just telling the dream that one day they will all throw it. They will throw us away from here and they will be able to go and settle again. Those refugees will be able to settle again. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they have refugee camps. They don't allow them to work. They live on UNRWA uh, money or food. So because they, uh, they think that one day they will be able to defeat us and uh, they will go back. Mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't work this way. It didn't work anywhere like this way. I mean, everywhere, mm -hmm. wherever there was a war, it didn't work this way. Mm -hmm. So after a war, you have to start to, to live your life. Like, for example, I, I gave you the example of the 850,000 Jews who had to flee out from, uh, from the Arab countries. They will never get their homes back. They will never be compensated. They will, uh -huh. they will never mm -hmm. be able to go back. Nobody will let them. They mm -hmm. will not get anything. So we moved on. We just tried to help them to build their lives. And the Arabs, instead of trying to help the refugees to build their lives, they just leave them as refugees, living on UNRWA. Mm -hmm. Now it is the great-grandsons of, uh, of the refugees are getting money from UNRWA, from the United Nations. So instead of moving on, they just keep it the way it is and mm -hmm. selling the dream that one day they will go back. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work this way. We have a country over here. They will never be able to go back. Yeah, that's a, you made a good point about leadership. I think that really matters because I, in reading uh, the history of the 1973 war, uh, Henry Kissinger was our Secretary of State, and he talked about Anwar Sadat being the head of Egypt. And after that war, it restored to some extent Arab pride, and he was able then to sit down as equals with Israel. And at that point, uh, Egypt and Israel came to some terms that really still exist today. Egypt is not a hostile, uh, actively hostile nation to Israel. And then Jordan became the second nation to do that. And so it's interesting how the axis has changed. So Egypt and Jordan today are not actively hostile. It's really more militant Islam, Hamas, and then the Iranian-backed Lebanon, and now Syria as well. So you make a good point. Sometimes you need a strong leader who can lead his people to peace. And that has been a little bit lacking, I think, in some of the uh, I think factions. I think the leaders are afraid. They're afraid of the radicals. Mm -hmm. So because of it, look, 70% of the uh, population, the Palestinian population, they want to live in peace. Yeah. 
They want to go to work, they want to go home, they want to play with their kids. They are not interested in all of those uh, uh, radicals or radicalism. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but they are afraid of them, so they don't speak up. Mm -hmm. That is, by the way, happens all over the world. I mean, you have terror attacks, Muslim terror attacks everywhere in the globe, and almost everywhere. And they are a very small percentage of the, pop the Muslim population. But they are afraid to speak up. They, uh, they uh, uh, moderate are afraid to speak up. Mm -hmm. That's one of the problems. You don't have a strong moderate leader that will speak against it. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and the people groups, you know, were much more fragmented than I, I would have thought before I came over here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely not the image that, I, mm -hmm. or the, the message that, have, that got to me as a kind of average American before I came to Israel for the first time. Kind of think that there is a consolidated leader who can speak for the entire group of people who should be there at the table, and that's just really not the case right now with with all the different groups uh, that Israel is dealing with. Yeah, but we have the same in Israel. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, because we uh, because the population in Israel understood that there is no one to talk to, and because of the two examples, we withdrew from Lebanon. We got terror. We withdrew from Gaza Strip, we got terror. So all the political map of Israel moved to the right. So now by the influence of the right, it's a bit harder to negotiate. But even though, if you think of it, uh, who made peace? I mean, a strong leader can make peace. Mm -hmm. So over here, <clears throat> I would say that the right parties or the, the prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he's, he might be stronger than more left party a leader. So it might be that he will be able to make peace because if he's coming from the right party, so if he's, if he's ready to, uh, to do some kind of agreement, so he's coming from the right, so it's fine, so it's okay. But right. if the left party will try to do an agreement, the whole right party, all the right political map will be on him. We know nothing about that in America. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not similar at all. So given the way that things are at this moment, what's your greatest hope for Israel moving into the future? Well, first of all, first of all, I hope that uh, the Palestinians eventually will, uh, will understand mm -hmm. that enough fighting with us, enough uh, trying to sell their... Uh, the people that one day they will throw us and or one day they will be able to go back. Mm -hmm. I think they have to move in, to move on. And I think that uh, instead of fighting us, they can, uh, they can learn from Israel. They can get the help of Israel to develop, develop their lives. You see, if you take, for example, the $9 billion the Americans gave the Palestinians, mm -hmm. it went to the, most of it went to the pockets of the leaders. Mm. If they would take the same money, they would take the money and they would invest it in high-tech, in yeah. schools, in universities, their life would be uh, totally different today. But they didn't. So this is one of the problems. I mean, uh, all kinds of countries in the world do not want to give the money anymore. They don't want to donate money because it goes, it's, it's all corrupt. Right. So... But if one day they will understand that instead of uh, being corrupted or instead of uh, fighting Israel, they will uh, maybe uh, um, 
tried to do all kind of uh, agreements with Israel that to build some stuff together. I mean, they're not stupid. They're very, uh, they're very um, uh, bright people over there. And they can be very good in uh, high-tech, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can make wonderful agriculture. Right. The, the only thing is that they need to, uh, maybe they need to learn how to, uh, to develop it. So they need, they need leaders to do it. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. I hope one day they will. And if it will happen, then I think most of the population of Israel would like to have peace with them. Right. What, what do you think, going on to the hub, what do you think, to, to accomplish what you just said, what do you think needs to happen on the Israeli side of that to help that occur? I don't think the Israelis can do anything about it. Because uh, as much as we are trying, I mean... I don't. I don't think. I don't think they are willing to uh, to accept it because they they think that if Israel would like to teach them something, it means that they are inferior. Mm-hmm. So they will not allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't see it happening in the uh, in the near future. I hope one day there will be peace over here. Mm-hmm. But if you ask me whether it would be possible or not, it depends also on the world uh, uh, Islam. I mean, if uh, the radicals will get into here, there will never be peace over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you spend most of your time doing, or at least a good portion of your time doing, <laughs> is guiding groups through the historic sites, the um, archaeological finds, and then in the city of Jerusalem, the temple and the surrounding areas, Temple Mountain surrounding areas. Um, how often do you lead tours, and what kind of groups do you usually work with? Oh, I work with all kinds of groups, but in the last, uh, I would say, 10 years, most of my groups are Christians. Mm-hmm. So uh, I like it very much to show them the land, to explain about the land. Yeah and also uh, to go into the uh, New Testament, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've joked with most of our groups that Yehuda knows the New Testament better than most of the people in our church, yeah. I think. That's definitely <laughs> true. Probably than some of the guides that you... you won't, we won't make you incriminate any of the guys that you work with, but probably than some <laughs> of the people you have to listen to teach at these sites. And one of the things I've appreciated about being here is it's, it's very difficult... I think until you come here to understand what's actually going on in your Old Testament. So you read the Old Testament, you get some of the major high points, you know, Moses, Abraham, David, but you don't really understand the political, historical, geographical threads of what's going on in this place until you hike up a tell and you say, okay, here's where this happened. And because that valley's over there, they did this, and you get it, it almost becomes 3D when you get to see yeah, it and when you get to hear to it. it. That's what I love about it. Mm-hmm. Because you can open the Bible, and here it is, as in Bet Shemesh, as in Azekah, and tomorrow you'll see the same in City of David. Mm-hmm. So it's like in a lot of places, it's like it's just there. Open mm-hmm. the Bible and speak about battles, ways, and so on. It's just there. Yeah. So that makes it alive. And suddenly people understand. Yeah. Suddenly they understand more. So for me, that's the, uh, the benefit. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really fun to get to watch that switch flip with people. Even on this trip, you see people that are just starting to get it. They start to understand 
the different eras. They've started to put what they know about the Bible in certain containers to where they know how things happen. Um, what have you learned about American Christians doing your tours? Funny things, good things, bad things. I mean, you get to see a very unique slice of the population come over First here. First of all, I love uh, working with Americans. Mm-hmm. And, um, and especially, I mean, when you work with a Catholic, it's different than when you work with other mm-hmm. Christians. And, but most of the Christians of the United States, they know the uh, Old Testament and they know the New Testament. So it's, for me, it's very easy to work with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they like Israel almost as much as we do. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's, and they're always smiling. They're always nice to each other. Mm-hmm. So it's just, for me, it's wonderful to work. I mean, that gives me so much energy. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel uh, tired from it. Yeah. Well, that's what you look for in a job. I mean, if you can find one that energizes you, you can find one that you enjoy. I mean, you, you found the right spot. Um, on our tour, one of the things that we've been talking about is the way that the land itself, the geography of the land, and even the agriculture of the land affects what happens. And I was talking to one of the guys on our trip earlier today. In, in America, that's one thing you just don't think about anymore. And I I actually discovered this when I was reading about the Civil War. So when you're fighting, you need to know the lay of the land, especially if you're marching troops around. It's not modern warfare. And so you know every hill, every river, every stream, because that will give you strategic advantages and disadvantages in your battles. Well, the same thing is true in the Old Testament. The the people knew the land in a way that we don't know any land. Like we were talking about, if you were to plop us down and, and say, draw a t- uh, topographical map of Oklahoma City. One, it would be really boring because Oklahoma City <laughs> But Very second, flat. I don't think anybody could do it. I think you could probably do it with your eyes with closed. Israel? With Israel? No way. No problem. Yeah, yeah. No you, problem. I mean, you've got no that problem. down. What do you think are the most significant things about the land that affect the story of the Bible? If you were to say to somebody who's never been here the most important things about the land itself— in understanding your Bible, what would you say? It's too complicated to to uh, answer that. And question. they can't even because see. It, we can't even put a map up because, right now. No, no, it's because it depends on what what story from the Bible. Mm-hmm. So it starts with uh, with Abraham mm-hmm. and Beersheba and why he had to dig a well over there, and mm-hmm. uh, and how he lived over there. And uh, and then it goes when the people of Israel are coming uh, and with Joshua and the crossing to the land of Israel. Why did they uh, conquer the mountains first? Mm. Who was sitting in the shore area? Right. Who was uh, stronger? And it goes into the different wars with the ancient Philistines, with others, and all the way to the war with Assyria. Why the Assyrians took first the Shephelah? And only then went to take Jerusalem. Right. So it depends. It depends about what war you're you're speaking of and what story you speak of. But you always see that the geography actually determined a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that hit me in the first couple trips is basically this is very rough, but down the middle of Israel is mountains, hill country, and uh, then going east to west, left to right, there are certain valleys in certain places. 
and where and there are certain rivers running down those valleys. And once you just superimpose the Bible stories on that, you start to realize, oh, that's why all these things happen here, because that's a great place to cross these mountains. I mean, in a very simple sense, just knowing where the valleys are make, made a big difference for me. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, I mean, I mean, this is a very simple thing, but just getting to to visualize the Sea of Galilee for myself was has really helped me understand Jesus' ministry in a whole nother way. I mean, I, you could sit there from any point in the Sea of Galilee and literally look around and see the towns or the little villages all scattered about. You can see and you can actually, I mean, you can almost visualize Jesus walking from place to place and, and how his ministry would have worked as a home base in Capernaum. You, know, you, you can actually understand that. And, and that just opens up a much better understanding of the, the things that everyone was dealing with in mm-hmm. the Bible that, that you, just, you don't appreciate unless you're actually here seeing it. Mm-hmm. Well, Yehuda, I want to I end with two questions for you. The first one is, what's your favorite site to take groups to? If you had to pick one I site. I don't have. What are you, don't have you, you don't have a single top one? Listen, I love a lot of places. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> I think the most, uh, the two most important places maybe uh-huh. are the places where it is showing that uh, by archaeology you find stuff that is written in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. For example, tomorrow in City of David, we're going to speak about it. Or even that Stella from Dan. From Dan, the Tell Dan mm-hmm. Stella. Tell Dan yeah. Stella telling about how important was David, otherwise he wouldn't be mentioned over there. Right. right? So those those places, I mean, or even if you take the uh, the Temple of Dan, mm-hmm. we know who built it, yeah. And so, so we know why he built it, and and so on and so on, and also traveling along the country, and you have those names. The biblical names are still there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, they are a bit a bit different than exactly the way they called they were called uh, during the biblical time. But you can uh, you can understand that Majido is Megiddo, mm-hmm. right? Okay, and uh, uh, Tabor is Tavor, Mount Tabor, yeah, and so on and so on. So we have and Bechemesh, Tel El Shams, Bechemesh. Uh, so we have so many places that the names are there. That's what I like. Uh-huh. I mean, the biblical the biblical names are still there, and you travel right. and you only have to. Have to mention it, and here's the story. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. The last the last thing I want to ask you was, I know you you pay really close attention to what's going on archaeologically in the country. I know you're interested and in, sometimes involved in what's going on. What's the most exciting progress that's being made in the country right now? Are there any digs that you're really following? Is there anything that's kind of coming about that you can mention? Uh, that you're pretty excited to see what they find or when it gets open to the public, what they'll get to see? First of all, I think they, uh, in Jerusalem, they still excavate uh, next to the uh, Western Wall mm-hmm. and they found some very interesting uh, stuff over there. Cleaning the street, going from the Western Wall all the way to the Pool of Suez. Mm-hmm. So soon people will be able to walk on that street. Wow. So it is exactly the street where Jesus and the disciples walked. All the people of Israel who came from outside Jerusalem walked mm-hmm. over there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and especially during the festivals and so on. And um, 
uh, all kinds of excavations in other places. For example, uh, Bethsaida, the new Bethsaida. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a recent development. It's only two years. We'll see what they will what they will find over there. Uh-huh. They started to dig two years ago. They started to dig uh, also in Kiryat Yarim. They already found some very interesting uh, stuff over there. So there are so many places that keep on excavating. Also Tel Dan. Every two years they excavate in Tel Dan. Mm. So there are a lot of excavations, and I find it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well. We appreciate you joining us here on So We Speak and the podcast. We like to discuss both modern and ancient things. And I, one of the things I love about your job is you combine the ancient and the modern and draw a connection between those two. And you're a man who loves doing his job. And we are the beneficiaries. Thank you very much. You're